honor, I want you to imagine a holiday in honor of the birth of the Lord and Savior of the world, the Prince of Peace, the man who is worshipped as divine. Imagine a holiday where people get together and they give gifts and they eat and drink and they be merry. I want you to imagine a holiday that people are so thankful that they give gifts to the poor and philanthropy increases. Now, such a holiday already existed at the time that Jesus was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. At the time that Jesus was born, there was an annual celebration across the Roman Empire of the birth of the Savior of the world. Except the Savior of the world was not Jesus Christ, it was the Roman Emperor Caesar. And the festival celebrated the fact that the Roman Emperor Caesar had brought peace and prosperity to the entire Roman Empire. And in the story of the birth of Jesus, we hear about a host of angels who visited shepherds, who were poor shepherds in a field, and they came down and they sang as a great choir. And we read this in Luke 2.14. It says, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And what those angels were doing on that night was proclaiming a new peace that was an absolute contradiction to the peace of the Roman emperors at that time, the Roman Caesars. The empire and the Roman emperors and Caesars, they brought something called the Pax Romana. Maybe you've heard of it. And it was imposed by military violence. And we know from our history classes in high school, if you took history classes in high school, uh, they went, the Roman army, they went through the Mediterranean, uh, killing and murdering and crucifying anyone who tried to resist them. They destroyed the city of Corinth in 140 BC. They burned other cities to the ground. They murdered everyone. The most common tactic was to just not only to destroy a city, but to terrorize the, the living residents, the local population to submission. So then they would enslave all the able-bodied people. They would crucify the rebels and just terrorize everyone in general. And farmers were thrown off their land, and that land was farmed by, they shipped in slaves to oversee that land, and they would farm that land on behalf of wealthy Roman aristocrats, and they would station army troops, Roman army troops, wherever they went. So the savior of the world, the Roman emperor, conquered people through violence, and then maintained Roman peace through more violence and more fear and more terror. Now, this Roman style of bringing peace through domination and violence was most experienced in the Middle East in the first century because the Jewish people resisted Roman rule time and time again. In fact, the Romans had to conquer and reconquer the Middle Eastern area, especially where the Jews lived, four times. And it is during this bloody conquest, this back and forth battle, and all these crucifixions that the prophet Isaiah around I don't know, say four, 700 years before the time of Jesus, he prophesied these words. And he said, for unto us, a child is born to us. A son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and the prince of peace. And Isaiah goes on to say this. He says of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne over his, and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And here's what Christians believe. God brings peace into the world through Jesus. 
a peace that is radically different than the peace that people were experiencing as citizens in the Roman Empire. Now today, we are going to conclude our Advent series that we've been calling The Thrill of Hope. And uh, Jesus came to bring hope. He came to bring peace. He came to bring hope and peace to the wars we see around us. And he came to bring hope and peace to the wars and the conflicts we experience together and we experience in our real life. Now, I don't know if you know this, but the Bible was not written in English. The Bible was written in Greek. And in the Greek language, there's a few types, two main, in fact, types for the word knowledge. Now, the first type of knowledge, it refers to head knowledge, something you know. It's cognitive. And the second type of knowledge refers to something that is gained by experience. Like when you experience something in your life, and as a result of that experience, you have a different kind of experiential knowledge that you wouldn't have had before. And what you will find in the Bible is that it often talks about this second type of knowledge, that we would know something because we have experienced it. And this Christmas, the God of the universe doesn't just want you to cognitively know that there's peace out there in the world. He wants you to experience it in a way that's real. He doesn't want you to have some abstract definition of peace. God offers each of us the opportunity to know, to experience his peace in our lives. And so he desires for each of us to experience a peace that we can't find anywhere else. He desires to, for us to experience peace from our anxiety and our addictions and in our worries and in our doubts in all different areas of our life. And he desires that each of us would know and experience his love in a way that we would be radically changed by it, that it would affect how we live. And it's not just so that we would know and experience love by like 2021 during the presidential election. I'm talking right now that God offers, uh, that God offers peace to us. Yeah, I, did, I think I did go there. You know, I need peace. So uh, God is not offering peace for like three years from now. What he's offering is peace right now. Like even right now, like even though it's like I talk right now, that maybe that God would want to bring peace into your life. So I've called today's talk, you guessed it, the Prince of Peace. Let's pray together. God, um, you are the Prince of Peace. And God, you know the places of turmoil in our lives. You know the places of turmoil in the lives of our friends and our family and in our world. And God, you came to bring peace. And God, I ask that in every fiber of my body that you would begin to establish your peace in my heart and in the hearts of people here today. So come, do what you will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, now it's important for you to know that one of the main reasons that Jesus came to earth was to bring peace. And you can find this in something that Jesus said. It's recorded in John 14, 27. It says, Peace I leave you. My peace I give you. I do not, I do not give, you, give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. In fact, the word peace is used 90 times in the New Testament. But so what? So what? What is the message of peace in the New Testament? Why is it important? Well, I'll tell you why it's important. Well, this country, America, along with so many others, we're at war. Now, according to the United Nations, there's five major conflicts, wars going on around the world right now. There are three dozen smaller conflicts that are happening around the world. There have more, been more than 20 major civil wars in Africa in the last 40 years, and in Israel and in India and Pakistan, they have been in a consistent state of uh, continual warfare for almost 60 years. 
And beyond just the real wars where people shoot each other and kill each other and do terrible things to each other, just look at the conflict that exists between everyday people. Even an anecdotal observation of the people you and I know, we don't have to look very hard to see that the people in our lives, our immediate families, our extended families, our co-workers, our neighbors, the parents, the other parents at your child's school, it is difficult to get along with one another. We're jealous. We're spiteful. We make living difficult for others. We can carry the hurt of previous relationships into new opportunities, into into new relationships. And sometimes we're just plain mean. Just think of how we shame people in our culture, people that don't fit in, people with whom we disagree with. Our culture quietly laughs at people that don't fit in, that we disagree with, or have let themselves go. Our culture, we experience brokenness on almost every level with people in our family structures. And as I mentioned last week, the issue of fatherlessness is huge in, our, in America. It's rampant in America. So peace on earth. We have so many personal conflicts, so many hurts that we absorb from other family members. We have longstanding grudges from ex-spouses. We have issues with ex-boyfriends and girlfriends. We have verbal put-downs that we've experienced that are burned. They're etched into our minds and in our hearts. Some of us have scars on our bodies. Even more of us have scars on our souls. Some of those scars going back to our childhoods. Now, Becky Pippert, she is a Christian author, writer. Uh, She took a counseling class when she was at Harvard. It was actually a psychotherapy class. Uh, uh, And uh, the professor talked about a case in which the patient discovered hostility towards his mother. So Becky raised her hand in class and said, let's say that patient comes back to you and says, I am so relieved to understand what was bothering me. It's an issue of hating my mother. Uh, That hatred towards my mother was driving all my addictive behaviors. And now I would like help to forgive her. And Becky asked, how does psychotherapy assist a person to be able to forgive someone? And the professor said, well, the patient will just have to learn to live with it. And hopefully not to be driven by any more addictive behaviors. So I don't really know how to help someone to forgive. And so all the students are like, wait a second, hold on. We're pretty smart. We went to Harvard. We're Ivy League. And so they raise their hands and they say, you know, they begin asking questions about forgiveness. And the professor got more and more tests. He said, I don't force your values or your neurosis about forgiveness on your patient. And finally, Becky Pippert raises her hand again and asks, do you think the words love your enemy are rooted in neurosis? Are they rooted in neurosis? And the professor finally said, look, if you guys are looking for a changed heart, you're in a wrong department. Psychotherapy can only help you understand your hatred. It can't help you to forgive. And now many of us would agree that forgiveness is important. And we might also say that forgiveness is very hard. Sometimes with certain people, it feels like it's impossible. But what Christians believe is that forgiveness is real. But forgiveness requires Spiritual power, power that Jesus came to give us when he came to bring peace into the world. Now, how do you and I gain the power to forgive somebody, especially someone who hurt us or who irritates us or someone who continually offends us? Perhaps something awful has happened to you. And if you're human, there's a good chance of it. Maybe you've experienced the loss of innocence. Maybe you've experienced a loss of love or a relationship or the loss of trust because of the sins of another individual. How do you begin to be able to forgive the person and be at peace with them? 
Where does the spiritual power come from that you need to be able to forgive people, maybe even some of the people that you're going to see this Christmas? According to the Bible, the way we have peace with each other only works horizontally. The peace that we want with other people only works if we first have peace with God. The Apostle Paul wrote this in Romans 5. He says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And perhaps one of the most important texts in the Bible explaining to us how peace is achieved between us and God is found in Colossians 2, verses 13 and 15. It reads like this. He says, He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, this is such an important message. I want to explain the whole thing to you in detail. How did God forgive our sins? Well, look at verse 14. It's this very interesting phrase. It says, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. More literally, in the uh, original language, which was Greek, the text would say, having blotted out the charge of legal indebtedness. And what this means is that we humans are under an obligation to obey God's law. God is the supreme ruler of the universe, and he revealed it to us at Mount Sinai and when he gave the, the people the Ten Commandments. Now, if you're not familiar with them, here's what they look like. It says, you shouldn't have another gods before me. Make no idols. Don't misuse the Lord's name in vain. Keep the Sabbath. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet. And now when Jesus came to earth, he said, okay, that's good. But let me tell you the heart of these things. Let me explain to you the spirit of what these really meant. And he tells about it in the, in the most famous sermon that's ever been preached. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And what Jesus does is he gets at the heart of these commandments. And he tells us that it's not enough that we just don't join our body with someone who's not our spouse. The commandment is designed to go deeper and prohibit lust in our heart. And the commandment against murder wasn't set up just to avoid us from picking up a gun or picking up a knife and ending somebody's life. Jesus tells us that the heart of the issue, the heart of the matter, is that God wants to prohibit us from hating another human being. That he from writing someone off, from closing our hearts and saying, I will have nothing to do with you. You're out of my life. I'm never going to deal with you again. Friend, have you ever written somebody off? Have you ever murdered somebody verbally with your words? Just torn them apart? Have you ever said one thing that you knew would just shred another person's dignity or you would, it would destroy their self-esteem? Now, if we're honest with ourselves, we can see that we've done these things. If we're, maybe you haven't shredded someone, but you've, you've messed up here and there. The heart of the issue is there. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, we can see that our appetites, our desires, and our anger have caused us to hurt others if we're willing to be honest with ourselves. And this wrong that we commit against each other is what the Bible calls sin. And the Bible shows people that everybody has failed to live without fault, without sin. And it says we have failed to live to give God the obedience that he deserves. Now, here's the interesting thing. Even among people who don't believe in God or who are agnostic or atheists or not sure, now, and many of those people, not all of them, but many of them still feel a sense of moral responsibility for the things they've done. They have a sense of moral obligation. They might not say it's to God, but they have sense 
a sense of moral obligation to the universe. And in their more honest moments, they feel like they need to do something with the fact that their appetites and their desires, maybe even their anger or their lust, that have, that have caused the hurt in other people. And so no matter how hard we try, we are never really able to pay off the debt to God. And if we don't believe in God, no matter what we do, we're unwilling to pay or unable to pay off our debt to the universe. And that's the great trap of religion. Or, as, or whether you're religious or non-religious, or whether, whatever, whatever kind of rituals we think we do, it's impossible to pay off the debt that we owe to God or we owe to the universe. And maybe we'll say things, well, maybe if I just go to church, or maybe if I just do some good now, it will make up for those things I did way back when with the person and the thing and the situation. Maybe if I just make more commitment to go to the gym in 2019, you know, I'll get things going and my body will look great and I'll feel better. Maybe if I go to confession, maybe if I get baptized, maybe if I just try to be a little better, I promise to be good. Maybe if I pray five times a day, maybe if I stop being mean to people, maybe if I actually fulfill my New Year's resolutions, this year's the year, I swear I'm going to make it to February. It's going to be great. It's going to be so different this year. I'm going to go for it. I'm totally going to get in shape this year. I'm going to eat healthy for the rest of my life. And it's starting on January 1. Yeah, maybe just do those things. It'll all work out. Then, then my debt will be paid off to the universe. Then my debt will be paid off to God. Friend, on your own, it's impossible to pay your debt to God. It is impossible to pay your debt to the universe. The Bible says on your own, you're bankrupt. I'm bankrupt. We can't do it. We can't pay our debt. It's too great. And so this is why Jesus coming to earth is such good news. Because when Jesus came to earth, he took the debt that we have and he made peace with God on our behalf. This is what Colossians 2.14 says. It says, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, God cancels out the debt. There's no more debt. If you have ever carried a balance on your credit card, what would you feel if you knew that debt was gone? It's the same thing here. Their debt is gone in the courts and in the system of heaven. There's nothing there. There's no record of your wrongs. You are free. You are free because of what Jesus has done. And so Paul goes on to explain how this peace was achieved. He says, not only were your sins destroyed or blotted out, but they were actually nailed to the cross. It says, having canceled the charge of legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And in the ancient world, when a prisoner was crucified in, under Roman rule, what they would do is they would have the cross, they put the person on the cross, they would nail the, the wrongs that the person did, uh, and it would hang over them as that person was slowly executed and tortured. And on the cross, the condemned person would have a sign listing the charge, whether it said thief or murderer or rebel. And you may recall that Jesus had these things listed, uh, some of these things listed over his head. The things he had listed was very simply Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, wasn't the only sign that was hanging over Jesus' head that day. That there was something else going on here. The other, there was another sign on that cross, and it was a sign listing out all of your sins and all of my sins. And they were nailed to the cross at that moment. The, only, the cross didn't just really say, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. It said, adulterer and slanderer 
and cheater and gossiper and liar and unforgiving and person that holds grudges and self-pitying and a proud person and angry, angry people who rage and selfishness, self-centered, lover of money, hater of God. Now, picture in your mind's eye a sign of your own sins. Just list it out. Your failures, all this out. Your failures as a mother and a father, your failures as a son or a daughter, your failures as a friend, your failures in any area of your life. Now, I want you to picture in your mind's eye the failures listed on that sign. And that sign is picked up and it is nailed to the head right above Jesus. He's hanging there, dying on the cross for under your sins and under my sins. And when you look at the cross, do you say, I see my sins listed up above the cross? Do you say, the cross is where my sins were, were nailed? Christ was condemned for all the charges that were meant to be thrown at me so I could have peace with God. So when we talk about the Prince of Peace, there is a peace that was achieved because of what Jesus did on the cross, because he took responsibility for the things we couldn't take responsibility for. He, and by doing that, he broke the power of sin, that sin no longer has power over your life and my life. There's no more power. He broke it. He demonstrated that he had power over it. And that's what we read in Colossians 2.15. It says, And having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And unlike the Roman emperor, Jesus didn't achieve peace by conquering people and torturing people and crucifying people, just killing and burning villages. He achieved peace by conquering Satan and all the dark powers of this world. And rather than rule from a throne in Rome with terror, Jesus rules from a cross with love. And the prophet Isaiah prophesied that a day would come when this world would be governed not by an emperor, not by the Satan of this world, not by the dark forces, but by the Prince of Peace. A day where every single one of our relationships would be full of peace. A day where every single one of our relationships would be restored. The Messiah would bring peace on earth, not only by restoring our relationships with each other, but also giving us spiritual power to forgive one another. And he would be not only do all those things, but he would remove the peace shattering effects of sin by suffering in our place. How can we experience peace with God and peace with one another this weekend? How do we do it? How do we actually do it? Well, there's another verse that uh, something that Jesus said in John 1 11, he said, he came, well, I don't think Jesus said it. I think John said it. It said, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, in order to experience the peace that Jesus came to give us, we must receive him. We must take him in. We must welcome him into our lives. However, we see that even though Christ came down to his own people, his own family, his own nation, to his own community, uh, his own didn't receive him. And what I have found is that many people in my life around me, they've been around Christ, but they haven't really received him. And maybe does this describe you? Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. I'm not here to figure that out. You can figure that out. And maybe you've experienced the truth of Jesus. Maybe you grew up in a home where the truth of Jesus was talked about all the time. Maybe you went to a Sunday school class or you were around friends who constantly talked about the truth of Jesus. But you've been around the truth and the truth 
about Christ was absolutely clear, yet you have not done anything with it. You haven't received it. You haven't taken it in. You haven't followed it. And when Jesus, the creator of the whole universe, stepped down from his throne in heaven and came to earth and became a human being during the time of Christmas, we see that he had no welcome. He had no parade. He had nothing welcoming him. In fact, everyone was interested in celebrating the Roman emperor Caesar. And who's Jesus? What do you bring to the table? We've got Caesar, baby. We got all this figured out. We don't need you. But it says in the text that we just read that some did receive him. And what we understand is that not everyone is a child of God. Everyone is a creature of God, but not everyone is a child of God. Not everyone gets the wonderful title, son of God or a daughter of God. Not everyone who is born as a child of God, not everyone, not, not everyone is born a child of God, according to the Bible. And you must do something to actually become a child of God. You must do something to be adopted into the family. How does a person get to be called a child of God? Well, from the human side, a person must receive Christ and believe in him. That is the call of the Bible. And how does a person become a child of God? From, the, from God's side, we would say it's a miracle. The children of God are not made by human engineering. They're not made by human planning or any kind of human material. They are made by the will of God. And you don't get born into God's family by your own power, your own strategy, your own plans, or even trying to be a better person. Your spiritual life in you is created by God. And the new birth is a miracle. You can't produce it on your own. The life has to be received. We do this when we receive Jesus. We believe in him and what he did for us on the cross. And God, through that, in some miraculous supernatural way, he works a miracle in our souls into a new birth where the light begins to shine and break through. We say, I get it. I understand. He's here. He's with me. He's living in me. Hey, it wasn't happening like this before. What happened? Something new happened. And so by receiving Christ, we get to be a part of God's family. By receiving Christ, we brothers and sisters, we get brothers and sisters in the church who are connected to God the Father. We get the power uh, inside to forgive other people. And when we have that power, we can begin to experience his peace. First, he talks, he talks to our minds. His spirit talks to our hearts. And then he begins to suggest things. And things begin to change. We somehow find it where in a place where we never were before, able to forgive, able to seek peace with others, able to establish peace in how we operate with our families and in our dysfunctional families and our normal families and in our workplace and the interpersonal relationships that we have in our life and with our roommates and everything, husbands and wives, spouses, we're able to do that. Peace is established when we first have peace with God. And that's the miracle of Christmas. And that's why Christ came this Christmas, to offer peace with God and offer the power to have peace with each other. Will you stand with me?